Our New Testament reading comes this morning from Romans chapter 10, or excuse me, verse, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. It can be found in your pew Bible at page number 1203. It's the red one. Let's go to the Lord for a prayer of illumination first. Please pray with me, living God. Open our ears, eyes, and our hearts and souls. Help us so to hear, see, and live in your holy word that we may truly understand, and that in understanding we may believe, and in believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith, that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For, with the, uh, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how they are to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Thank you, Danny. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. I know that my uh, children were particularly uh, missing their mom last weekend. It was the women's retreat, and uh, the kids were home alone with me, so they had to endure my cooking, uh, so you can pray for them. Uh, We had actually one of the goals, one of my wife's love language, primary love language, is is service. And so I thought one one of the ways I could show my love for my wife, Sarah, was by mobilizing the kids to clean the house on Saturday morning. Uh, yeah, you can laugh about that. You know, that probably didn't go well. So I got the kids awake and had breakfast and, and gave out the chores and the tasks and the list and said, let's get to it. And, and by God's grace and, and a lot of my uh, encouragement, uh, we eventually finished by 12.45. I made lunch for the kids. I had a birthday party I had to take John to at 2 o'clock. So I was like, all right, let's eat and get dressed and then we're going to go and we're going to have a good time, John. And, and as I was getting ready myself, all of a sudden I hear this crying in the distance. My daughter Elizabeth, my middle child, comes running into my bedroom and she's crying. She says, John just spilt milk all over the floor. I just mopped. <laughs> I know we're not supposed to cry over spilt milk. I said, Elizabeth, it's going to be okay. It's a tile floor. We can clean it up again. No big deal. Well, as I was trying to console Elizabeth about this time in my bedroom, John comes running in and John is dripping in milk <laughs> all over my bedroom carpet. And I looked, there was a trail of milk from my bedroom through the living room all the way to the kitchen. I know there's no crying over spilt milk, but that morning there was a little yelling. 
I said, John, what are you doing? John, when you make a mess, you clean the mess. You don't drag the mess into the rest of the house. Get back in the kitchen. Clean the mess. Well, John ran back, and poor little guy was just trying to defend himself because he knew his older sister was, you know, ratting him out. And so he's trying to clean up the mess and the milk. And, and I, you know, I said, oh, John, look at this. You're, we're going to have to give you a bath. And he starts arguing with me about taking a bath. I said, no, you've got a party to go to. You can't be sticky with milk. And so I, I gave him a bath. And as I gave him a bath, I started to, to realize I'd, I'd been a little hard on John. And so I, I apologized to John. I said, John, I, I'm really sorry that I lost my patience. Anybody here ever lose their patience before anybody? A few of us? Okay. I said, John, I'm really sorry that I, I lost my patience with you. I should not have yelled. I should not have yelled at you. You know, I know you're just trying to, to do the best you can. And he said some wise words that I'll, that I'll remember for a long time. He said, he said, Daddy, you know, you have about this much patience. Mom has about this much patience. And then he said a, a wise word from God. I'm sure it was a word from the Lord. He said, you know, Daddy, even Mommy with all her patience, sometimes, sometimes she loses her patience with me. But God, God has more patience than anyone. Out of the mouth of babes, God has ordained praise. I said, that's right, John. God always has patience with us. God always has patience with us. Even though we sin and rebel against God, God is patient with us. But even God, even God can lose his patience with the people of God, can he not? As we read the story, our, continue our journey through the grand narrative of Scripture, we'll see that God has begun to lose his patience with the people of Israel. In our text this morning, uh, Elijah, the great prophet, is going to, to challenge the people of Israel to, to turn from their idolatry. Now, to catch you up, if you haven't been with us a few weeks, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about how King David was the, the most revered king in the kingdom of Israel in their history because King David was a man after God's own heart. And then after King David, his son, King Solomon, was a wise king, and he's viewed as the wisest king in the history of Israel. But unfortunately, King Solomon had many wives, and these wives were from foreign lands, and his heart begins to turn towards the foreign gods of these foreign wives. And so God decides to punish Solomon by dividing the kingdom of Israel in two, not during Solomon's lifetime, but rather during his son Rehoboam's lifetime. And as Kim pointed out last week, you know, Rehoboam was the, the son of Solomon who took over, but he, he could only lead the southern kingdom, Jeroboam. The servant of of, uh, Solomon ends up taking over the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Israel is torn in two and the the northern kingdom has one bad king after another. Jeroboam sort of sets the tone. Jeroboam was a, a man who was worried about how the people of Israel might go back to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple that Solomon had built. So to avoid them traveling back to Jerusalem for worship, he decides to set up two golden calves in the town of Dan and Bethel and he tells the people of Israel, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And he sets up two golden calves. Two golden calves? Really, Jeroboam? Did he not read the story of Exodus and how that didn't go well when when Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai and and they make a golden calf and they start to worship and how irate God became at that? Has Jeroboam never read the the Ten Commandments? Uh, We read them in Exodus chapter twenty. Verses three to six, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, we read, you shall have no other gods before me, God says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As we read through the Old Testament, we will see time and time again the people of Israel forget these two most important commandments and they begin to worship other gods like Baal. Baal was a fertility god and I've got to be honest with you, worshiping Baal was probably a lot more exciting than worshiping Yahweh, right? Uh, Baal was the kind of god that the Canaanites had been worshiping for a long time and, and worshiping Baal as a fertility god was more exciting for people and they began to turn their hearts towards these false gods, towards these idols, John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, points out in his writings that the human heart is an idol factory. It's very easy for our hearts and minds to be turned towards the creation rather than the creator. An idol is anything that we deem as more important than God. Our work, our relationships, our hobbies, our stuff, our money, even our families can become idols if we're not careful. They can become idols if we give them greater precedence than our relationship with God. To find out how we can avoid the sin of idolatry, I invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 to 40. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired people to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would guide us now as we read your word, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. Listen to the word of the Lord. When Ahab, now Ahab was the seventh king of the northern kings of Israel. He was married to Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel were worshiping Baal. They were telling the people of Israel they should worship Baal. When Ahab saw Elijah, Elijah was the great prophet, Elijah had said there would not come rain because God was displeased with Ahab and Jezebel. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of the Lord your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. 
Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you or many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made and and at noon Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God, either he is uh, musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that they had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time and, he, and a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Can you believe that? I mean, God has asked a very, Elijah has asked a very simple question of the people of Israel. Are you going to worship God or are you going to worship Baal? We all know the Sunday school answer is God, right? Reminds me of a little boy who's in Sunday school class and his teacher is trying to use the, a squirrel as an illustration about how we need to store up and this old proverb about storing up for winter. And, and so she's trying to explain this and she says, I want to tell you about a little animal. You know, he's furry and he's got a long tail and he, he picks up nuts and he stores them up. Do you know what animal I'm talking about? You know who I'm talking about? This little boy raises his hands. Well, it sounds like a squirrel, but, squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. So... Jesus is the answer, right? He's the answer. I mean, you're in Sunday school. It's Jesus. It's God. It's a simple question, and yet they say nothing. I love the way that Elijah, or or 
Uh, Eugene Peterson translates this passage in the message, 1 Kings 18 to 21. He says, how long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. Immediately, the Israelites should have responded, the Lord, he is God, we'll worship him. But instead, they say nothing. They're in a moment of indecision. They're not sure. Why are they so indecisive in this moment? What has happened to the people of Israel? I mean, if you look at Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, after the people of Israel come into the promised land, Joshua gives this amazing final speech to the people of Israel. And in Joshua 24, 14 to 18, Joshua says to the people of Israel, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And it is, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua takes a stand. And then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. Hundreds of years before Elijah, Joshua had asked a simple question and the people resoundingly said, the Lord, he is our God. Now, a hundred years, hundreds and hundreds of years later, centuries later, Elijah is asking the people of Israel a similar question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. How is it the people of Israel are so uncertain at this point? How did they get to this point? Century before, in Joshua's leadership, the Israelites boldly declared that they would worship the Lord for he is God. Now under King Ahab's rule, the people of Israel weren't sure who they were going to worship. Was it gonna be God or Baal? I don't know. And so they said nothing. How did they get to this place of indecision? I'll tell you how the Israelites got to this place of indecision. They became so indecisive. They got to this point of indecision because, well, the Israelites had gotten out of the habit of calling upon the name of the Lord. The Israelites had gotten out of the habit of calling upon the name of the Lord. In our text this morning, the great prophet Elijah thinks that he's the only one left, the only one who's still calling upon the name of the Lord. And he tells them to bring the 400 prophets of Asherah, the goddess Asherah, and the 450 prophets of Baal. Both Asherah and Baal were fertility a god and a fertility goddess. And he says, bring them all together. 850 all together. It was 850 to one. None of the odds makers in northern kingdom of Israel thought that Elijah had any chance against so many prophets. And Baal was a fertility god. He was known as a storm god. If anyone could light a fire, it would have been Baal with with just a flash of lightning, right? So they're looking at Elijah saying, what are you doing? 851, you got no chance. But Elijah, Elijah takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He builds an altar, reestablishes an altar. He, He puts the wood on the altar and then he does the unthinkable in the midst of a drought. He asks them to take four jars of water 
and to pour it on the wood and the altar. And he asked them to do it three times. Twelve jars of water all together. So much water that the, the trench that is surrounding the altar is now filled with water. Elijah is making it real clear that if, if the fire is going to light, it's going to be a miraculous work of God. I mean, have you ever tried to, to light a fire with wet wood? It's, it's very difficult to do. And Elijah sets the stage for the remarkable, for the miraculous to happen. So how does Elijah get God to light the fire with wet wood on an altar? Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Elijah prays. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah was surrounded by by worshipers of Baal. But Elijah never quit calling upon the name of the Lord. Elijah maintained his faith by continually calling upon the name of the Lord. When we become anxious, when things aren't going our way, who do we call upon? Who do we call upon? It was interesting this past Saturday as I helped the kids clean the house for the first time in a really long time, uh, I I was noticing uh, all the different things that needed to be repaired. I noticed we had some broken tiles in this one bathroom, and I noticed that this sink here is starting to crack a little bit, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And as I'm noticing these things, I'm thinking, this needs to be repaired, and as a finance major, I'm thinking, what's this going to cost? You know, I'm kind of running the numbers on that, and then I noticed there's a stain on Hannah's uh, carpet, you know, and it's starting to fray a little bit. I'm like, oh, that probably needs to be replaced too. And and then that evening, that evening I was paying uh, the bill. And I noticed that we had this big car repair, about 1700 bucks. It's like, oh man, I wasn't looking for that, you know, and paying all these bills. And Sarah comes back from the women's retreat, this spiritual high in Santa Fe. She said it was one of the best women's retreats she'd ever been on. It's a great time of fellowship and community. And comes back with a great joy. And I didn't want to like rain on that parade. So I let her tell her story about everything. And then she said, well, how was your time here? I said, oh, it was okay. And, and she could tell that wasn't a good answer. And so she said, well, what happened? What's going on? I said, well, you know, and I started listing all the things that our house needs repair for, and I started sharing a little bit of my anxiety about the cost, and, you know, I just said, hey, you know, we need to, really need to look at our expenses, because I just looked at the budget, you know, and I said, man, we're a little over on expenses, and savings isn't what it needs to be, and we just need to curb our expenses for the next few months, and I don't know, we might need to think about raising our income somehow, you know, and just kind of share my worries, and, and she looks at me, and she says, you know, wow, it sounds like you're really anxious. You know, we ought to pray. I'm thinking, sweetie, we need to balance the budget right now. Uh, we can pray later. I mean, you know, we got, we got uh, expenses are going up over income at places, and so we got we to fix that problem. I mean, math doesn't lie, right? Let's get the numbers right, and we'll pray all we want. I mean, I'm a pastor. I get paid to pray. You don't need to tell me to pray, do you? But she did. She did need to tell me to pray because I hadn't prayed. I ran straight to what my mind knew and what, how the numbers work, and I hadn't paused to pray. When troubles come your way, when things aren't going according to your plans, when your heart becomes anxious, what do you do? The Apostle Paul writes some powerful words to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi is being persecuted themselves. Paul actually writes these letters from a prison cell, and we read them in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. The Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice in that text, it says to pray with supplication, with thanksgiving. As we think about our prayer life, as we think about when we pray and what we tend to pray for, do we offer enough prayers of thanksgiving? Or do we tend to run to supplication and say, God, this is what I need. If you could fix this, that would be great. I love that old acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, then supplication. A great way to model our prayers. Begin by adoring God for who God is. As we think about who God is, as we do in worship every Sunday, then we offer a a prayer of confession, confessing our sins to God, maybe our lack of faith, and then we thank God. We thank God for his faithfulness. We thank God for his provision. We thank God that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And then, then we offer our prayers of supplication. As I shared just a moment ago, John Calvin writes that the human heart is an idle factory. In this world, we can easily, easily, very easily pursue stuff rather than God. That's why Jesus talks about money so much. In fact, next to the kingdom of God, he talks about money more than any other topic in the Gospels. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Bible never says there's anything wrong with money. There's a lot of rich people in the Bible, and they're good people. And the fact is that God can use money for great things. That's why our operating budget of our church gives 12% to local and global missions. We can see how God is using the money we give back to help serve and minister to the kingdom and how that is being blessed and ministry is happening and lives are being changed. But the love of money, as, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.10 the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If we want to know what's important to someone, look at how they spend their time and look at how they spend their money. Does our calendar reflect that God is the most important thing in our lives? Does our checkbook reflect that God is the most important thing in our lives? It's easy to fall into the temptation of idolatry. But as we give our time, talents, and treasures to the work of God's kingdom, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we invest our lives, our time, our talents, and treasures in the work of God's kingdom, our heart follows and we grow in our relationship with God and he becomes the center of our hearts and minds. Because in our walk with God, we've got to make sure that we're, we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're, we're fulfilling that greatest commandment, the Shema, which is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because we, our world is filled with idols, anything that seeks to offer pleasure and peace that, that only God can bring. Tim Keller defines an idol in his great book, Counterfeit Gods. He defines an idol as this. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. When we're alone with our thoughts, what do we tend to think about? Do we think about the unconditional, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that we find at the cross of Christ? And how nothing can separate us from that love that God is with us and for us in Jesus Christ? After all, that's what the Apostle Paul used to think about. Paul reminds the church in Corinth in writing to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse two, he says, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. While Paul was with the church in Corinth, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's mind was focused on the cross of Christ because at the cross of Christ, we see the great demonstration of God's love. Even in the midst of persecution, Paul would remember the cross of Christ and how much God loved him, how God had a purpose and a plan for him, and God was never gonna leave him nor forsake him, and how victory is ultimately won at the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. Yes, things have gotten so bad, the people have gotten so far away from calling upon the name of the Lord that God has to do a, a great demonstration for the people of Israel. And so he has Elijah build up this, this altar and soaks it with water and he brings this lightning from heaven to, to start the fire and it consumes everything. Do we need God to light a fire so that we might believe in him today? Is that the kind of miracle we need to, to capture our attention, to capture our hearts so we might turn to God and God alone again today? Our brothers and sisters in Christ, on this side of Easter, we've got a lot better miracle than a, than a fire from heaven. We've got an empty tomb. We've got a risen Savior. We've got a, a Savior who came to this world and, and lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, and then he died on the cross for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And his victory over sin and death is now ours if we'll simply believe in him. And we've got a lot greater miracle than just a, a fire from heaven. We've got a Savior, a risen Savior, who shows us and lets us know that the best is yet to come, that this earth is not all there is, that heaven awaits all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. As he read in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When troubles come, who do you call upon? Who do you call upon? Do we call upon the name of the Lord? And when we call upon the name of the Lord, do we begin with supplication or do we begin with thanksgiving? Reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness. Reminding ourselves of God's great love that we find at the cross of Christ. Reminding ourselves of God's great victory that we find at the empty tomb. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, this world is filled with idols and we confess that our heart's an idol factory. It's so easy for us to turn to the creation rather than to look to you as our creator Oh God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have shown the full extent of your love that you sent your son who was without sin to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross. And then on the third day, he rose again. What a remarkable demonstration of love. What a remarkable demonstration of power. Oh Lord, in light of that reality, in light of the resurrection, Lord, help us to live in the new life you've called us to. Help us to build the habit of calling upon you before every meal, Every morning when we arise, asking you for your blessing upon the day. Every night as we go to bed, asking for us to see how you've been at work in our lives, to confess our sins to you. And Lord, may our prayer life begin with thanksgiving and adoration, and then may it move to supplication, knowing that as we thank you for all you've done, we can see how faithful you are, how you've been faithful in the past, and we know that you'll be faithful in the future. Oh God, we thank you for your amazing love. It's in your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen.